am I afraid? Out in the middle of this scary forest all by myself. But you know what I do when I am afraid? I will tell you. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. Oh, what's that? <laughs> ah, birdie. Oh, do not worry, birdie. I will protect you. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a careless pose like this and whistle a happy tune and no one ever knows I'm afraid. Oh, oh, that's a terrible thing. It's a butterfly. The result of this deception is very strange to tell. When I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. What is that awful thing? Oh, hello, Grover. Cookie! Oh, it's only a monster. Convinces me that I'm not afraid. No, not me. I whistle a happy tune. And every single time. The happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Hey, I am not afraid. No, I'm not afraid either. We are not afraid anymore. Hi, fellas. I'm coming. Well, you're in the right place. We dismissed the kids, but uh, <laughs> the coolest thing about the internet, I mean, I know it solves problems, brings the world together, but you can find YouTube clips from 1970 Sesame Street when I grew up and kind of a uh, we have fun in our house on the Apple TV, looking at different things and showing Rudy kind of some of the fun stuff. And came across this little chestnut. And I remember in 1970, when I was about three or four years old, kind of uh, Grover singing about being afraid. And uh, actually uh, discovered some years later during a summer theater production that they actually lifted it from Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's the, the King and I. Uh, but um, either way, uh, there is just something about it. You realize, boy, that song probably has used, been used countless times to calm children of their fears, to make them see that the thing that they're afraid of really isn't anything to be afraid of. The thing they think is a dreadful creature is a butterfly, and the monster, monster that they fear turns out to be lovable cookie monster. Um, and, uh, you know, for all of us, you know, there's that tendency, you know, we realize it's, it's we, if we whistle a happy tune, if we take on this, this countenance of bravery that somehow we will end up fulfilling that and actually being brave in the face of our fears. So it's, it's, you know, it's fun to be reminded that and helpful to be reminded of that. And today we are continuing uh, our, our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. And today we've reached Psalm 125. And uh, I have really enjoyed this series and was looking forward to the opportunity to preach because Preaching always presents a challenge, an opportunity to look at a portion of scripture and to kind of discern what it's saying and hopefully pass on some insights to share with somebody else. 
And uh, this is particularly challenging for me when it comes to the Psalms because uh, I am really not a, a poet, poetic person. Um, and uh, typically when I kind of have encountered either read something on the Psalms or heard a, so- uh, heard a sermon on the Psalms, my tendency is to kind of look at the person preaching and say, okay, please tell me what this says. What does this mean, actually? I want them to unlock the imagery and boil things down to common everyday language and just tell me precisely what that means. And uh, um, I think in preparing for this sermon, it dawned on me that that is probably a flawed way to approach the Psalms. To think that each Psalm has one definitive meaning uh, is not consistent with what is intended by poetic verse. Uh, Because verse, poetic verse typically has a broad range of meanings. And they are significant largely to the circumstance of the person reading them. Um, If I think of one of my all-time favorite psalmists, Bruce Springsteen, um, (laughs) next to the Bible, okay, uh, I readily recognize this. I grew up in New Jersey in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I don't want to get on too detailed an excursus here, but his most popular, probably widely known anthem is the song Born to Run, which is actually the state song of New Jersey. The legislator (laughs) voted on it. But Born to Run is a story about escaping your circumstances, about not getting stuck, about breaking free. We were born to run, and so run and don't stop. Well, a couple months ago, I was driving to Los Angeles with Olivia early in the morning for a soccer tournament, and she was catching some Z's in the back seat, and so I kind of put on my earbuds and started just kind of cycling through my playlist, and pretty soon, uh, an acoustic version of Born to Run came on. And... uh, hear the song, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of times, and there was something that all of a sudden struck me in the third stanza, where the word goes, it goes, together we can live with the sadness. I'll love you with all the madness in my soul. And I have sung those songs and, you know, sung that song and realized that all of a sudden this message that struck me out of the song was very different, that, that the song, it's not about running perhaps, but perhaps it's about realizing there is no perfect place in this world that we are able to run to. And so maybe what we can hope for is a companion, uh, somebody who can share the journey, the twists, the turns, the madness, and the sadness. And on that morning, it struck me so deeply that I kind of put the repeat on my iPod and must have listened to the song about six times and actually cried a few tears. And because There was a teenager who listened to that song and really saw it as this raised fist rebellion. You need to get out. You need to get on with life. But the same person listening to it years later probably kind of realized that there's nowhere to get to. It's about being okay with where you're at. So the question is, what is the song about? Is it about running? Or is it about realizing that running will get you nowhere? (laughs) Well, the fact is, it can be either, and it's probably both depending on the circumstance of the person who is, actually, uh, uh, who is actually listening to the song and what they connect with. That's the point of, of poetic verse. Uh, we place words together. Words are placed together uh, to evoke imagery. And so no artist setting out probably evo- intends a singular and narrow focused meaning. And we need to realize that when we look at the Psalms, it's the same thing. They will impact us at different moments in different ways. And I keep this in mind when I think about the Psalms because it especially happens with those songs that are dearly familiar to us. And in the book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction that Eugene Peterson 
wrote that uh, we're basing a lot of the series on, he refers to the Psalms as Israel's dog-eared songbook, that these are songs that they knew. They were part of, you know, they, they just, you know, little kids probably knew the words to these Psalms before they actually really even knew what words meant. Um, and the words become so familiar that they are probably often sung without giving much mind to them. But there were perhaps likely occasions where people were going through unique circumstances and unique challenges where suddenly one of those verses would come back to them. And they'd say, wait a minute, that's what we were singing about. Oh my goodness. So, giving myself a huge break here as I preach because what I'm saying is, <laughs> let's resist the temptation to give a narrow, focused, and linear interpretation to it. Because if the poet who penned it wanted to communicate something uh, very precise, to be interpreted one way and one way only, in order to be lived out in one focused application, he or she probably would have used a very different genre, would have written an essay, would have written something very specific and directive and not employed figurative language. So with that said, let's stand together and uh, give Psalm 125 a read if you are able. A pilgrim song. Those who trust in God are like Zion Mountain. Nothing can move it. A rock-solid mountain you can always depend on. Mountains encircle Jerusalem, and God encircles his people. Always has and always will. The fist of the wicked will never violate what is due the righteous, provoking wrongful violence. Be good to your good people, God, to those whose hearts are right. God will round up the backsliders, corral them with the incorrigibles. Peace over Israel. Amen. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you might speak to us during this time to our hearts. Let us be open to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the, the key image or metaphor for security here in the psalm is that of a city. And that is something that's, that, that I find relevant when we think about the time period in which this was written. Because in our era, we do not typically think of cities as being safe places. When you drive to L.A., you are a little bit more aware of your security than you are in Santa Barbara. Uh, the contemporary urban environment is intimidating and is one of danger, but the people who sang this song didn't view it as that way. Cities were places of security. They were fortified. When you traveled, you hoped to plan things out so that you would arrive at a city before it got dark, because you could get in the city in the evening before they locked the gate, and that would indicate safety for you. Cities were typically defended uh, uh, by guards. They had walls. And even if you lived outside of a city, you would hope to be on good terms with them and live in somewhat close proximity that if there ever was an assault or invasion, you could get inside and be safe with your loved ones and your possessions. And then if we add to this the specific geographic location of Jerusalem, which is situated, kind of surrounded with mountains, there is even a greater sense of security provided. They referred to it as Jerusalem. They also referred to the city of Zion, which the, the poet uses here. But any opponent who wanted to attack Jerusalem uh, would have to overcome difficult terrain in order to launch a full-scale assault on the city. 
So to surprise or to amass troops would be very difficult to do. So within the city, you could find refuge and safety. You could rest easy. In fact, if you were inside Jerusalem, most of the time you could look up at the walls and see some reminder, some kind of fortification that would again affirm this message that we're safe here. Everything's okay. And I find it really uh, interesting that as we think about these Psalms of Ascent being sung by these pilgrims as they walked up that hill to Jerusalem, across that terrain, that there's even more of a figurative expectation because once they got to the city, the journey that they did, I think it was three times a year, would be over and they would be, they would be safe and they could rest peacefully without having to watch or be overly concerned about their surroundings or the challenge uh, of the journey. And so Psalm 125 is dealing with this idea of security. And security is something we all desire, be it physical, be it emotional, be it financial. We all need to feel safe, and we are ill at ease if we do not feel safe. We do not sleep well. We, we, we do not, are not able to let down our guard. And, uh, you know, I think about kind of the fundamental uh, just, just importance of safety and security in our lives in the work that uh, the team I lead does at the rescue mission because we help people who are caught up in addiction. And addiction is basically an attempt to find security, misguided as it may be. And uh, one of the fundamental things that we, we provide as a bedrock for people is when they come in, what we're basically saying to them is, listen, in our recovery program for the next 365 days, you will not have to worry about how you're gonna eat. You won't have to worry about where you're gonna stay. You won't have to worry about what you're gonna make. Uh, what you're going to wear. Um, our, you know, we'll take care of that for you. And you're not going to have to worry about the usual defense mechanisms and behaviors that you have to retort, re resort to to protect yourself from getting hurt. And when we create this climate of security and safety, uh, so for sometimes for people who have been running for decades if, and, and years, there are all kinds of neat things that can then happen for people once they're able to let down their guard and rest and we're able to see God uh, do incredible works. Well, the pink pilgrims who were singing this song lived in a markedly different context, but they had this same human impulse that we have, this same desire to be secure. And the song and the security that they looked forward to when they got to the city of Jerusalem uh, was actually an object lesson because what they also were needing to be reminded of in this object lesson is that we find security from God amidst the everyday challenges and threats to safety that we face. And it's in that way that this psalm is relevant to us thousands of years later, because we also don't think of security in the context of a city and, find, and finding peace uh, you know, inside an urban stronghold, but we have areas in our lives where we clamor and hunger for security, where we feel threats. And there's countless ways we can probably quantify all the things that trouble us. Uh, but within Psalm 125, it seems there's kind of two main categories that, that it seems like, at least I hear uh, the psalmist speaking to. Um, first of all, you see Psalm 125 deals with this, this incredible image of, of Jerusalem as a rock-solid mountain. It is stable. It is unmovable. And that is an ideal that kind of is worth singing about. It's something that we would hope for because we are not that. We waver. We doubt. We commit to doing things 
and then are shamed by the fact that we can't hold up even the most simple end of the bargain. We wish we were resolute and steadfast, but instead we are confused and scared. We wake up in the middle of the night paralyzed by worry and fear and anxiety. We know we're supposed to trust God and rest and, and find peaceful joy in him, but yet we obviously don't do that. And I think one errant way of, of, of singing this psalm is to aspire to one day be a person of absolute confidence and faith. To think if we sing this enough, maybe someday we will be people who don't fear and people who don't get depressed. But the fact is, is that these, these shortcomings, these inconsistencies are part of what it means to be human. And I mean, there's probably, you can go to James's Bible study because I know Wesleyan perfection, I'm kind of, you know, it's not a bad thing to aspire to improve and to inspire that. But I think on the other hand, um, separate from that aspiration, we have to realize the fact that as long as we are human beings, we will be inconsistent people. We will be people that have fear. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, talks about the history of Israel being a sawtooth history. You know, it's jagged. They go up, they go down. And that's kind of if I look at my own life, uh, introspectively, I realize, yeah, it is a very irregular history. Uh, on the one hand, the nation of Israel saw God's deliverance. They praised him for it. Uh, they, and yet then they were turned around very quickly and driven to worship other gods and idols. Their rulers made these declarations to be faithful and then quickly fell into all kinds of immorality. But the important thing to realize is within this, God does not waver and does not rescind his offer of refuge. And so as we sing this song, we're reminding ourselves that we have a place to run to that is solid, that is stable, that has a firm foundation. And we can find safety and security there despite all the very real doubts and fears that we may wind up uh, having. Psalm 125 gets us to remember and, and urges us to look up at the facts about God which is especially helpful in times of doubt and despair because, because typically what brings on doubt and despair is too much focus on ourselves and our circumstances, our inconsistencies, the people around us or the world as a whole. We need to be sure we are looking at God who, as the psalm tells us, is consistent, steadfast. He is good to his people. He fulfills his promises, and he is steadfast and a refuge and comfort. Second kind of suffering that, that seems evident here is the whole realm of pain and suffering. And which one of us does not want to find refuge from pain and suffering? Uh, there's this dramatic metaphor of the wicked fist and a term violence that gets used. And the fact is, is that this is, you know, that, that some of the most wicked and some of the most evil-fisted things that we can experience, there is no walled city that can protect us from that. Uh, and the people who sung these songs experienced heartbreak just like we did. Their kids got sick. Their loved ones died unexpectedly. They were betrayed by people they loved. They suffered with debilitating in illnesses. They were deeply hurt and experienced things that could only be described as wicked and evil. And if I'm being honest, if I were writing this psalm and if I were kind of able to articulate the conditions here, uh, I would really want to change the wording and say not 
and, and I think I'd want to write, the wicked fist will be destroyed. The wicked fist will be stopped. I think we all wish that, because who wouldn't want evil and the, the, the heartbreak we experience to be stopped? But, uh, and, and I think this is somewhat sometimes gets, gets tricky in our thinking, is that we think that being a person of faith in relationship with Jesus means that we will not experience evil and heartbreak. Uh, one of my best friends is a pastor in Los Angeles, and in his church, he's walk, walked with a number of people in his congregation uh, who have gone through some very difficult international adoptions. And he was telling me a story about one of them where this family, uh, you know, prayed long and hard and decided that God was leading them to adopt uh, internationally, went through an amazing amount of paperwork, time, effort, expense, uh, flew to a former Soviet republic, and came home with a beautiful toddler. Everything was initially so happy, uh, so happy and, and beautiful, but as that boy grew, it became very evident that the neglect and the abuse that he experienced early in his life uh, deeply scarred him, and he would act out violently to the extent that their house became a place of hostility. They feared for their safety. They literally would lock up the kitchen knives and kind of think about any implement they put around that could be used for harm or destruction. And in more than one counseling session with my friend Bob, they expressed to him, gosh, you know, we were so sure we were doing God's will, but why would this happen then? To which Bob had to say to him, you know, I, I still fully believe you're doing God's will. And as hard as it is to hear, you know, what gave you the idea that just because you were doing God's will that everything would be happy and not include heartbreak? Um, evil and pain and suffering are a part of life. And the psalmist recognizes that. The security we have in God does not come because evil ceases, but rather because it will not accomplish what it's aiming to do. It says, the fist of the wicked will never violate what is due the righteous, provoking wrongful violence. The wicked fist is a given, but it will never violate what is due the righteous. Because when we encounter evil, it's a natural thing to start to wonder whether God is still with us and whether his promises are still intact, because it doesn't appear to be that way. Our world can get disorienting and confused, so much so that we need to be reminded that this does not and nothing will stand in the way of God canceling uh, out God's purposes. It can be a very natural impulse to, to resort to other means, uh, to... to contend for our own security, and to resort to wrongful violence, as it may be. And so we need to be reminded that, that taking things into our own hands is not what we're supposed to do, but within it, to strive for righteousness within it. What is due the righteous will not be violated. Um, as, as, as we... You know, as I think about this, obviously, you know, forgive me, but, you know, probably 90% of the illustrations uh, that I give are dealing with the last five years that Trish and I have had with our son, Rudy, um, which is good for you because previous to that, 90% of them were about sports. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so depending on your, there are some guys like, oh, please talk about sports. I like that better. Um, but, you know, obviously, for those of you who, are visiting today, Rudy, you see him around in his wheelchair. He is an absolute sweet boy, uh, has had more struggle than anybody I've ever seen in, in his life. And 
you know, also has a very uncertain future due to some major complications he has with a pretty major heart defect. Um, but the thing that we have seen and experienced firsthand is, is that pain and suffering, if not checked, if not responded to, it, it, it tries to destroy. Uh, anguish will do crazy things to you because in your panic, uh, even the most composed person can get destructive really fast. And uh, we saw this more times than we cared to when we were in the ICU. Rudy spent the first seven months uh, of his life in the ICU at UCLA. And more often, uh, I mean, it was a regular occurrence that you would see families around you, panic-stricken parents, uh, lash out at doctors, at nurses, at people trying to help them. Uh, more, there were quite a few times where the police actually had to be summoned into the unit to kind of get people back under control. And you know, so you just see, yeah, on the one hand, is that inappropriate behavior? Yeah. On the other hand, you think, okay, if somebody, something so precious to someone is in the balance, you, all, you can see where it will lead you to do crazy, irrational things like that. Um, immense suffering can bring us to that. But the fact is, is that it need not be anything so dramatic and crazy as having a kid in the ICU. Because if I come home troubled from something uh, that happened at work during my day, I can quickly find myself responding with hostility to one of my family members at home who had nothing to do with that. I act out of my own anguish. And the people of Israel could be viewed uh, by others as, as being completely subject to the evil fist. Um, their history includes being conquered, being enslaved to the point where bystanders would openly question or even mock their resolve to trust God. So this psalm, they sang this reminder that, that, that evil is a part of this world, and even though it may not look that way, it will not accomplish its purpose in this world. Uh, despite how bad things may, may appear, it will, never, it will never overcome God's promises to the righteous. So as much as we wish that wicked fist would be gone, we draw security from the fact that it can't derail those who remain in relationship with Jesus. And lastly, the, or the last uh, kind of thing that I see in the psalm as I'm walking through it is, is the notion of de desertion. Because that's another irrational response to, to suffering and pain and fear. Um, that depression and doubt and pain and suffering are all real threats such that they can cause people to abandon a relationship with God. And this may not be a pleasant thing to think about, but uh, if there wasn't the risk of dire consequences, there would be nothing, there would not be much need to be afraid. Uh, because it's safe to say that people singing this song saw defectors around them, saw people who went their own way and decided to take security into their own hands because it didn't seem like God was protecting them. And so this exhortation is to keep on, despite all shortcomings and inconsistencies, that, that God will be good to those. It says God will be good to those whose hearts are right. It doesn't say it will be good to those who are perfect and fearless. It's those whose hearts are right. You know, yesterday I, I uh, um, got home and Wilson had done a little chore for me. And, uh, you know, as, as would be my uh, tendency is I went out to inspect the chore that got done. <laughs> and I was impressed. I mean, he had taken out a stump for me and I kind of described, and, 
And I mean, I went out there, and I mean, it was just where this stump had been that, you know, uh, had been bugging me for a year. It was perfectly smooth dirt. And I thought, boy, right next to it is the patio. And if I had done it, it would have been covered with dirt. And I could tell somebody had swept up all the dirt perfectly clean. And so, good job, Wilson. Uh, he's looking for work, by the way. If I, uh, <laughs> but, but the reason why, the reason why I was so blessed by that was because there have been perhaps a few instances in the past where my kids took on a project to try to help me, and it ended up being more work for me than I actually kind of, you know, uh, don't get me started on Olivia cleaning my car windows, okay? Because it was like, but, but the fact of the matter is, is, you know, when, when, you're, when, when the kids would do something like that, because I couldn't see out of my car windows for about a week after they washed, you know, it was always the thought was, well, her heart was in the right place, you know? Oh, God, it, it was kind of fun. I think of my, my daughter as I, you know, was avoiding traffic accidents and stuff, but... <laughs> But, you know, it was always that kind of thing where it was like, well, it was cute. And, you know, I think she made $2 for doing nothing. But, you know, it was like, but, you know, as a parent, you're always like, oh, it's so sweet. You know what? Her heart was in the right place. She deserved the $2. She tried, you know. Well, the good news is, is that's, that's the way God deals with us. Your heart's in the right place, you know. God, uh, uh, be, God will always be good to his people whose hearts are right. And that's, that's, that's exciting, and that's, that's very comforting for us. Um, should mention just, you know, at the end there is this term about uh, backsliders. And uh, just as I look at it, I think, you know, this is, this is a term that I really don't like, partly because the notion is, is rather unpleasant. Also, I think because it takes on, um, you know, it, it's part of Christian lingo that may get us thinking a little bit more about judgment of others and their status, which is a wrong thing to be doing. It really, you know, our concern is our own. But um, I think in reading it, we have to affirm the fact that there is, you know, uh, there is security in our salvation. God has made a contract with us, and he will uphold that based on his character and not on our behavior. And broadly speaking, that's a very safe assumption, but yet, there wouldn't be some warning here against backsliding here and other places in the Bible if there wasn't some possibility of, of somehow walking away from God. For me, it follows that a faith that is freely offered to us can be freely rejected. God, God does not force us into faith, so I don't think he would somehow require us to remain there if we choose not to. So um, uh, that said... You know, I think, too, because when, when you read this, obviously, the psalm is really nice up until that last stanza, and so I kind of thought about, well, maybe we just don't even deal with that part. And, uh... <laughs> but on the other hand, I think the thing that is a comfort to me is realizing that there does seem to be a volitional aspect to back, about backsliding. I think it's not like one of those things where you have to sit there or fear, like, unknowingly, gosh, did I just slide out of salvation? It seems to be, and it seems to be even here that there is this idea of, you know, corralling with the incorrigibles, that there is a willful kind of action that takes place to do that. Uh, so the psalm is sung to remind the people of God and his character and his qualities, and that is largely what we need uh, to be assured of when we are feeling uh, unprotected and vulnerable. 
because we've been looking too much at ourselves and our environment and the people around us, things that are very difficult to change, if not impossible. And uh, the problem is, is that more often than not, I can find myself looking at a psalm like this and reciting it or singing it much in the manner of the way we saw Grover doing when we started today. That there's this idea that if we sing these happy songs, that somehow we will trick ourselves into being happy. And the fact is, is you know, it's interesting that even in the words of the, the Whistle a Happy Tune song, it says the result of this deception, you know. And there's a tendency where we, we should not look at a psalm like this and think that we are somehow going to trick ourselves into denial, which will then make us happy. Because on the one hand, yeah, there's a place for that if we are irrationally afraid of something that doesn't really merit fear. But on the other hand, there are threats that are actual threats, and danger is actual danger. And whistling a happy tune in an attempt to convince you that they are not what they are uh, is not really helpful. And so Psalm 125 doesn't deal in denial. It, 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 it instead exhorts us uh, to be reminded about the facts of God. Despite the fact that we may feel unsafe, God is deeply concerned for us. Despite the fact that we may be in excruciating pain, that will not destroy us. Despite the fact that we may feel completely vulnerable, God protects us. And despite the fact that we may feel absolutely hopeless, God is with us. So as we close, I'd like to invite uh, Trish and Jeremy back up just to, um, because I'd love to have uh, those of us who this speaks to who are yearning uh, for a sense of security right now to have a chance to be prayed for. Uh, so I know there are a few people picked out. If church board members could be on, on call too, if they see a need, please come up and pray as well. But um, there are any number of realms where we could be feeling vulnerable. The physical, the emotional, uh, we could feel uh, vulnerable in our finances, our work, our future. Uh, there are all kinds of places where you might find yourself wanting uh, to be, uh, to be uh, assured of God and his security. So as we go to prayer, I'd just like to invite people, as, as, uh, as Trish and Jeremy play, to come up, if you feel uh, a sense, to come up here and kneel at the rail, and then we'd like to have people here pray for you. So um, if you want to share about a specific realm, you can do so briefly. They'll ask you if there's something that they can pray for, but... Uh, if you just don't want to say anything, you say, just pray. That's fine, too, because the point that we have is not to be praying through specific circumstances, but as the psalm is telling us, to be reminded of the facts about God. And so that's what we want to pray over you. So let's pray together. Jesus, we are grateful for you. And just as we enter into this time of response, we pray that you would minister to us. Pray for people as they feel fear, insecurity, and challenge, that in this we would be reminded uh, of the facts about you and the protection and security that lies within you. In Jesus' name we pray.